Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. A historic voter turnout paves the way toward a new constitution for the Métis Nation of Alberta. The vote to ratify the document by Métis citizens was the largest for an Indigenous constitution in Canadian history. If it is ultimately adopted, it would change Métis self-governance and relations with the federal government, among other things. But a number of other Métis groups complain they were left out of the process and are working to force changes. We'll learn about the Métis and the Constitution push coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Pueblo of Acoma in New Mexico is praising the signing of the STOP Act by President Joe Biden. On Wednesday, the Safeguard Tribal Objects of Patrimony Act became law after being passed by the Senate in November. It prohibits the exporting of sacred Native American items. It also increases penalties for stealing and illegally trafficking tribal cultural patrimony. According to U.S. lawmakers, it will help prevent instances like the auction of the Pueblo of Acoma Shield. In 2015, the Pueblo sought the return of the shield from an auction house in Paris. The item had been stolen from the Pueblo decades earlier. U.S. New Mexico Democratic Senator Martin Heinrich introduced the STOP Act in 2016. In November, on the Senate floor, he talked about the shield's return. Thankfully, intense public outcry and diplomatic pressure were enough to halt the illegal sale of a tribe's cultural patrimony. And finally, in November 2019, More than three years after the shield was put on the auction block, it was voluntarily returned to the Pueblo. However, this only happened because of intense public outcry and notoriety. In most cases like this, the item has been sold or simply disappears into a private collection. Items are sacred to the Pueblo and are not to be given away or sold. Pueblo of Acoma Governor Randall Vicente says the signing of the law is a historic moment. He says there have been moments in history when Congress has taken action against Native people, but says this is a time to celebrate. The 18 other Pueblos in New Mexico also urged for the bill's passage, along with the state's Apache Nations, the Navajo Nation, and other tribes across the country. The bill was championed in the Senate by U.S. Alaska Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski. The House passage of the bill was in December 2021, led by New Mexico Democratic Representative Teresa Legere Fernandez, along with Native American Representatives Tom Cole and Sharice Davids. Cole is a Republican from Oklahoma and Davids, a Democrat from Kansas. The bill was championed by the late Alaska Republican Congressman Don Young and had help from many other U.S. lawmakers over the years. Researchers have been puzzled by colorectal cancer rates for Alaska Native people. For the elderly, the trend has been going down, but for young adults, the number of cases has gone up by 5% a year since 1996. There's one possible explanation. Older Alaska Native people seem to have more frequent and thorough screenings. Diana Redwood is an epidemiologist for the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. The Alaska Native Medical Center has issued guidelines for Alaska Native people to start screening at age 40. 
And this is actually lower than the national recommendations for all Americans, which is the start screening at 45. Redwood says colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death for Alaska natives who are diagnosed at a rate two times higher than the white population in the United States. On top of that, Alaska natives have the highest incidence of colorectal cancer in the world, although the cancer is still more common among the elderly. Redwood says despite the increase in early onset colorectal cancer, it's not what healthcare workers expect to see. If they do have somebody come in who's younger and they've had abdominal pain and weight loss, that they don't rule out colorectal cancer as a possibility. Aside from pain and unexplained weight loss, other signs of colorectal cancer are blood in the stool, diarrhea, and constipation that last for several days. Redwood says sometimes there are no signs, which makes screenings all the more important. Researchers don't know why the rate for young Alaska Native people continues to rise, but suspect lifestyle changes are a factor. They say reducing smoking and alcohol, eating a healthy diet, and getting more exercise can lower the risk. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Citizens of the Métis Nation of Alberta just ratified a new constitution that will potentially give greater self-governance to the nation. It's a historic vote that could clear a path for more federal money for services and improvements. It is also a means to stronger Métis representation with the federal government. But there are critics, including Métis settlements, that say the process to ratify the constitution was flawed and the document does not adequately represent their voices. The Métis have a complicated relationship with the Canadian government in comparison with other Indigenous groups that's rooted in historical perception and confusion over Métis identity. Today we'll dive into the newly ratified Constitution. We'll also explore Métis history and identity, and we very much welcome listener input. Do you hear any parallels between Métis progress and your own tribal community? Join the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE or you can post a comment on our social media. Our Twitter handle is 180099native. We have four guests on our show today. I'd like to introduce them all to you now. Joining us first from Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada is Jean Taille. She is a writer and indigenous rights lawyer. She is Red River Métis. Jean, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Sean. Joining us now also is Garrett Tomlinson. He is the Senior Director of Self-Government Implementation for the Métis Nation of Alberta. He's a citizen of the Métis Nation. Garrett, hello. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having us. 
And also joining us in Canada from the Métis community of Lethbridge is Dr. Adam Browning. He is the president of the Métis Nation of Alberta, local for Lethbridge. He is Métis. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, Gene, I'd like to go ahead and begin with you, and let's talk more in depth about this newly adopted constitution, and what exactly does it mean overall for Métis governance? I think the, the way to approach this, or the way I always approach everything, is to try and put it in a historical context so that you understand where it sits um, in history. Um, so, I, so I would just say that I begin back in the early 1800s with the beginning of the earliest sort of nascent forms of governance that the Métis created, um, the first one being on the buffalo hunt, and they created their own laws. They had a, a setup of governance. They held basically trials. They, did, uh, they made decisions about representation and about governance. Um, that then evolved in the 18, late 1860s um, to a Red River Code that was adopted by the people. Um, that then was taken to Saskatchewan and uh, Capel developed their own code. Uh, the laws of Saint-Laurent were developed. Um, similar things were happening in, in Alberta. And then in the 1930s, the negotiation towards the Métis settlements happened. Uh, I should start and go back a little bit further. 1887, the creation of the Union Nationale Métis Saint-Joseph de Manitoba um, also created. So there's a long history of creating what I would call sort of regional governments in the Métis nation. Um, so so uh, this new constitution and the way it's working is, is following in that historical context the creation of another sort of what I would call a regional government. Um, and so each of these ones has not been without controversy. So they've all had, um, I'd say, you know, ongoing issues of who's included and who isn't included. Um, and so I, I regard it as part of the ongoing historical dialogue that the Métis Nation has been involved in for over 200 years of how do we govern ourselves, who's included in which group, who's got the power or the voice. And one of the interesting things about it is that it is a pretty fluid and continually changing governance form as needed. We're pretty adaptable and pretty flexible, and that's pretty interesting to me that we keep doing um, different forms of governance and trying to make them work, and then we keep adapting them as the times change and as the way we live changes. So I see this as a part of that continued history. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for helping us frame some of this history and put that into context, Gene. And 
this constitution uh it's the, the latest in in an evolution of of government systems and policies in place for the metis people and uh why now why uh have has the metis nation of alberta um, gone forward with this constitution, having it ratified now, and why is it so controversial at this point? Well, let's start with why go- why they're going right now. We have a window of opportunity here. The uh, I, and I think Americans you'll you'll appreciate that things change depending on whether you have a Republican government or whether you have a a uh, Democratic government. They have different perspectives and ways of dealing with Indigenous people. We have a window of opportunity here in Canada with the Liberal government. The window opened in 2015. Uh, took them a while to get their, um, let's say, their policies and ideas and framework together. Uh, governments don't move quickly, but the, especially federal governments. But we have a window of opportunity. This government has Um, attempted, I I would say, I don't think any government can change 180 degrees this quickly, but it has opened up the opportunity to sign self-government agreements and other kinds of agreements with Indigenous people. For the Métis, we've never had this opportunity before. It came about only once when we were talking about amending the Canadian Constitution, and there was a Charlottetown Métis Nation Accord on the table, but when the Canadian public voted down the constitutional amendment, that fell. And no one in federal government has touched it since. So the idea that there are opportunities to sign self-government agreements, which will allow uh, lawmaking powers, it will give funding, it will create some stability in government, and it will allow Métis Nation regional governments to get out of the Societies Act or the not-for-profit corporations, um, bundle that they've been stuck in for so long. So it's an opportunity, the window too, because the political stars have aligned. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I always think if there's, if there's more money, more land, well, more money, if there's money, land, or jurisdiction on the table, you should take it. So um, because it may not come around again, um, and it's a chance to lock in some authority within the Métis Nation itself. Then the nation itself, if it has internal squabbles, let it figure it out itself. Um, so I think that's why it's happening right now, is there's an opportunity here, which we haven't seen before. And so that's, you know, we haven't seen this since the 1930s when the settlements mm-hmm. were set up, and that was only in Alberta again. So here we go. This is the opportunity. That's why it's happening right now. Well, let's bring Garrett into the conversation now. And Garrett, I'd like to ask you your opinion of the new constitution and and what's your thought in in terms of uh, some of these communities that uh, say they haven't been consulted properly? Yeah, no, thanks, Sean. And and again, thanks for having us. You know, I think this is a a historic moment and a historic opportunity for the Métis Nation uh, in ratifying this constitution the way they have. I mean, when we really sit down and look at it, of, of the almost 700 nations, uh, indigenous nations in Canada, 
I mean, the courts have made clear that uh, reconciliation should be negotiated, but there have only been about 25, uh, just over two dozen self-government agreements uh, negotiated in Canada. I mean, this constitution really becoming the the last stepping stone towards that agreement for the Métis uh, is huge and historic, and it's a huge opportunity for, for the nation within Alberta. I mean, looking at, you know, all of those agreements, every time we've we've seen one of those agreements negotiated and signed, there's always a, a group of people who, who are opposed, and that is the democratic process, which is why we go to these processes like ratification votes and make sure every citizen has the opportunity to have input and have their say. I mean, the Constitution itself was drafted after three years of, almost three years of consultation by the Constitution Commission with MA citizens. Uh, it went to the assembly in uh, of the MNA in August uh, of this year, and the citizens were, you know, almost unanimously uh, of the opinion that it was uh, the draft was in such a state that it should go for a ratification vote to all citizens in the province. And that's, you know, essentially what we attempted to do is to make sure every citizen had the opportunity to uh, to vote on that constitution. You know, we we went from in-person voting. Uh, which is the traditional way we've done it to also allow for mail-in and, and online balloting. Um, and in doing that, this became the largest Indigenous ratification vote in Canadian history. 15,000-plus citizens were able to have their say and vote on this. Um, and the results were overwhelming as well, almost 97% voting in favour of it. Um, and really, you know, if we look at every other self-government agreement in Canada, including the one that created the territory of Nunavut, there's more people who voted and, and expressed their opinion on this constitution than created an entire new territory within Canada. So, I mean, it really is historic. It really is a unique opportunity for the Métis uh, in Canada um, to advance themselves uh, through self-government and, and advance their aspirations of self-determination. We're going to have to take a, a short break here. Listeners, uh, today we are talking about Métis people in the Canadian um, province of Alberta and a recently ratified constitution that could potentially give these people greater self-governance. And uh, the Métis people have an interesting history, an interesting culture, and it might not parallel precisely with uh, some of our tribal nations here in the U.S. And we're going to learn a little bit more about Métis history and their identity and how it differs from what we have here in the States. We'll talk with you again here in just a bit. The inclusion of works by Raven Chacon and Diani Whitehawk in a major show at the Whitey Museum of American Art is among the highlights in the art world in 2022. We'll hear about that exhibition and others that made waves in Native art circles coming up on the next Native America Calling. Indian healthcare provider www.medicare.gov forward slash coverage forward slash flu dash shots Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking with Métis legal experts and leaders today about Métis governance. If you'd like to join our conversation with a comment or a question, you can do that by calling 1-800-996-2848. 
That's 1-800-996-2848. At the beginning of the show, when I introduced our guest, I apologize. I left one of our guests out. I would like to introduce him now. Joining us from Vancouver, British Columbia, is Bruce McIver. He is a lawyer and partner at First People's Law. He is Red River Métis. Bruce, uh, apologies for not introducing you earlier. Welcome to the show. No worries, Sean. Thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. And Bruce, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Métis people. So our listeners in the States can have a better understanding of identity, because I think that's really critical uh, to discuss these issues today. And can you help us clarify who is Métis? I've heard people say, if you are an Indigenous person in Canada who is not First Nations or you are not Inuit, then you are Métis. Is that an accurate way to identify a Métis person? Yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than that if you look at how the laws developed in Canada and the fact that the Métis are identified as a separate Indigenous people under the Canadian Constitution. The courts have looked at that and said, well, uh, who would who would the Métis be and what would you have to do to demonstrate that you have rights as Métis under the Constitution. So part of it is identifying as Métis, as being a Métis person. But what's really important is that you also need to be able to trace your ancestry back to an an identifiable Métis community that was present on the land at the time that colonized moved across the country and the Canadian crown began to exercise control over those lands. So that's a really important part of at least legally as being Métis. It's not just having the ancestry, um, but it's also being able to trace yourself back to a particular Métis group on the land. So that's why you'll often hear Métis people um, acknowledge where they're from within the Métis nation. So Gene and myself were both Red River Métis. Uh, that's where our families are from. And that connection is really important as being Métis. Now, where do most people uh, or most Métis people reside in Canada? Is it safe to say that all Métis people can trace their origins to what is now Western Canada? Uh, there's an ongoing debate about that within Canadian law and within from the Métis themselves. Uh, there is uh, the Métis homeland, which for the, those that adhere to that definition, it's a area that includes mostly the prairie provinces, part of Ontario. Um, so that's one position on on the Métis. There are other people that self-identify as being Métis across the country that take a different position on the, that. So it's one of those contested questions that uh, I'm sure we'll continue to have conf- continue to have conversations about. 
Now, as I understand it, there's an an increasing number of people who identify as Métis, Bruce. Uh, what's driving that? Yeah, what's driving it, I'm not exactly sure. I think some of it is people are confused around what it means to be Métis. They're confused around the law. There have been different decisions out from the courts uh, that have tried to clarify it, but in some situations perhaps have confused it even more. Um, So it's really important that there's an open and transparent conversation about this, um, that what it takes to be Métis, both for Métis themselves, just under their own laws, and then also within the context of Canadian law, what it means to be Métis. If we don't have that open, fair, transparent conversation, there's there's a danger that being Métis can become uh, very generic and Mm -hmm. watered down and disconnected from the historical and legal roots that are fundamental to the Métis nation. Well, Bruce, help, thank you for helping us uh, clarify. And, and can you further explain, so what is the relationship between the Métis nation of Alberta, uh, with whom this recently ratified constitution applies, and these 14 Métis communities that oppose the constitution? Are they all in Alberta? Are they all the same people? No, I'm not the best situated of the p- people you have on the call to, sp- to speak to that. So okay. I think I'll defer for another one. Thank All right. Jean, would this be a question you feel comfortable answering? Uh, you know, I, actually, I'm going to kick the ball to Garrett. Okay, let's do it. Garrett, please respond. <laughs> yeah, no, happy to, Sean. I mean, speaking, you know, this ties in really to what Bruce is saying and talking about identity. You know, the, the Métis Nation of Alberta represents over 57,000 citizens who are Métis in Alberta who voluntarily authorized the MNA to become its government. But the MNA also is the only Métis government that has a credible and objectively verifiable registry system that identifies our citizens and then tests that identity to make sure, that, yes, they, they're geneal- genealogically connected and they're recognized by Métis, by the Métis community, which is represented by the MNA. Um, you know, the, these other organizations uh, haven't been able to uh, to present the same sort of credible registry, uh, verifiable registry system. Okay. Um, and, you know, from, from our perspective, uh, that is a key element of nationhood, is having that ability to talk or, or to speak to who your citizens are and be able to identify them. Okay. Let's bring Adam Browning into the conversation now. And Adam, what uh, what we hear from Garrett there, is that an accurate uh, description of the relationship between the Métis Nation of Alberta and these communities that oppose the Constitution? Do you have anything to add? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. No, with all respect to Garrett, I don't think that's accurate because I'm from one of these communities. There are a number of communities that were outside of the Métis Nation of Alberta, but there's also communities like mine that are within the Métis Nation of Alberta. Now, I just want to start by thanking especially Jean Talay. She's pioneered as a leader in establishing our collective rights and, and preserving our history. And this is what this is about. I'm a democratically elected leader. I believe Garrett may be an employee of the Métis Nation of Alberta. I'm a democratically elected leader of a large community within the fold of the Métis Nation of Alberta. 
And my position is that this was not developed through a dem- democratic process. Far from it. There was no meaningful consultations with the communities that are part of this. I think it does challenge the notion about how our identity is formed and what it looks like when it's entrenched through a constitution. And it really, there's, there's challenges in the document itself. There's definitely a deficient processes, but there's a challenge in the document itself, which in my view amounts to an unfair power grab. It doesn't solve our current deficiencies as a nonprofit. In fact, I believe it entrenches them. I think it takes and formalizes what's a heavy nonprofit. And my concern is that, you know, and to, to Jean's point, you know, we've had a history of temporary regional governance. And I think that this is going to result in more of that. I do agree with Jean that there's a window of opportunity, and Bruce as well, there's a window of opportunity to have us recognize. I'm worried that this opportunity is being squandered. I already see this being challenged legally, um, including from communities within the MNA, including from settlements that are governed separately, as well as some of these communities on the outside. Um, and I think that it's going to amount to more communities looking at leaving that fold. This was an opportunity to be a unifier and bring people together to celebrate that historical goal of having a constitution. And I'm worried that uh, it's not going to come to fruition. Mm-hmm. Adam, the 15,000 Métis who voted to ratify the Constitution, uh, are you satisfied with that number? Does that in any way represent close to a majority in your opinion? Look, I'm going to try and be respectful, but, you know, we see 98 percent of people voting yes in some third world countries to things. Now, we had made requests directly to the federal government and directly to the Métis Nation of Alberta to look at their funding agreements because we were concerned with how this ratification took place. I had community members coming to me concerned that they were seeing uh, programs being advertised like rental supplements with one-sided messaging saying, vote yes on them. And so, you know, if we want to talk about democracy and accountability, I think it starts with looking at, even within the states, you know, even from governments that may struggle or parties that may struggle, rarely do you see them using public funds to sway a vote yes. And I heard directly from community members that they were being reminded by emails that they hadn't vote, voted. And okay. so they were concerned about, you know, it being tracked and then maybe being ineligible for programs. And so I think that there was a, a boycott of the vote. And so to have the largest ratification of an Indigenous constitution in Canada, well, that's great. When you have 56,000 members or 53,000 members, and many of them are not voting and contributing to that process, it's kind of resembling what's been ongoing. And they've been looking at major decisions being made within this organization with less than 1% of people participating in these decisions. Things like elections, like their annual general meetings. They had a decent turnout for the ratification. We respect, you know, I expected the results, but I believe that that is a bought and paid for result. Okay. Adam, what are your biggest concerns within this new constitution? So my three biggest concerns are just the process that it was devoid of meaningful consultation. You know, I have a community of 1,700 carded members, 3,500 self-identifying people in my area. I, I won't get into that fold. Bruce and, and uh, Gene are the experts when it comes to that. But we have a large community, and we had written specifically asking to have consultation sessions in our community. And we got a response saying it would come. That never came. We had one person who was eligible to attend. It was unclear when they gave feedback what was included within that feedback. 
And the only other opportunities we had to speak to the, to the Constitution were when it was already set. You know, I had three generations of leaders from my area who were trying to understand the rationale for the boundaries, these arbitrary boundaries that have been created for our new districts. And, you know, we were told, oh, it was based on consultation. I asked, you know, consultation of whom? I have three generations of leaders for all of these areas here, and they're unclear on it. It looks like gerrymandering. And so I think the first challenge there is there wasn't meaningful and adequate consultation. I think that's where this is going to be challenged legally. I think the second area is that there's already a precedence in Alberta of the Métis Nation of Alberta being challenged legally about being the sole voice for Métis. And they lost the court decision. Um, and they have many... Central to that was that many communities within the Métis Nation of Alberta, like mine, have said that they do not, they're not comfortable with the Métis Nation of Alberta being representing them on their consultation rights. So Indigenous okay. consultation rights. My community is part of that. And so the extinguishment of rights are concerned. And then the last one, it just doesn't address the current challenges that we're seeing. It's not clear how it's going to improve the organization. Okay. Uh, in what way is it not clear? I mean, I've heard the, the term land grab used already on the show today. Is it regarding how, how lands are managed and, and how their ownership of lands there in Western Canada? Well, I think it's, it's, it's trying to address governance challenges. At least that's how it's been presented. So we've got three levels in our current government structure. You know, we have the provincial council, regional council, and local councils. What's been put out to the regional and the local councils is that this is going to address some of the deficiencies that we see, like equitable sharing of resources, funding that's able to come to communities. And it's been this blanket solution to say that this is going to improve access to funds that we get federally, but there's never been a clear answer to how specifically that's going to happen. I'll give you an example. We made a request to the Métis Nation of Alberta, as well as to the federal government, to say, well, if this is a solution, let's see your funding agreements so that you're telling us now we can't have access to many funds and many resources. Let's see your funding agreements. We've never been given them. And so to say that somehow this constitution is going to improve access and transparency when that currently isn't there, it's unclear. You know, it's just saying, mm -hmm. let's trust the leader who's been in place for 26 years. And then the people who are supported in this top heavy nonprofit that work for them, you know, no, a democratically elected leader by my community my community isn't endorsing that. Okay, let's go back to Jean now. And Jean, tell us more. What is the structure, the governmental structure, that leads to these kinds of disagreements that, that we're hearing Adam voice today? Uh, I've been a, a negotiator of these self-government and treaties with First Nations for 30 years. And I've been um, on three separate ones, one in the Yukon, one in the Northwest Territories, and just until April of this year, one in the Lower Mainland in British Columbia. And all I can say is that my take on it historically is that this tension between the local um, group, like the one that Adam's talking about his group here, the tension between the local and the sort of regional body or the sort of the body that's negotiating the agreement is one that is a classic um, democratic tension. The, the people on the ground versus the, or the local versus region, region versus nation. It's, it is 
the dialogue and the discussion that is always ongoing. So, but in order to, um, I, I just wanted to address one thing that Adam said about show us the funding agreement and everything. Uh, so, Adam, the the funding formula is in the policy, the funding policy for Indigenous self-government um, in the federal government. It's available online. You can see the policy. The funding, though, that has been negotiated that all Indigenous self-government, self-governing nations have um, access to is only about how the, the actual government itself is funded. And then there's a big, long list of all the things that they're still negotiating funding for. So that's an ongoing process, but what is going to happen is that the funding is going to roll out exactly the way it does for other self-governing First Nations, um, and that at least is readily available for um, for you to see. And so, I, you know, I think that uh, as we work this out, and this is the same thing we have in First Nations, right? You'll have sort of a tribal group. I was working for the Stalo. Um, and their part, they're, they're not only do they have tribes, but they have, they're called a tribe of tribes. So the Stalo is the overall tribe, but within that they have the Chukwaic tribe, they've got um, the Camel, they've got various okay. other, other tribes, subgroups. So all of that is, I see it as a natural political tensions that are going on, and they'll sort themselves out over time. Okay. Gene, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take a break now. Listeners, if you'd like to get into this conversation, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. This month and every month, remember, one in three Native American adults have high blood pressure. Check it at your nearest community health center. If the numbers are above 120 over 80, talk to a healthcare professional. Native community well-being is very important. You can take action by visiting heart.org slash hbpcontrol. This support provided in partnership with HHS slash OMH and HRSA under cooperative agreements CPIMP 2112-27 and CPIMP 2112-28. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're speaking with Métis legal experts and leaders today about Métis governance. We're also delving into the history of Métis identity in Canada. If you'd like to join our conversation today with a comment or question, you can do so by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And let's go back to Garrett Tomlinson. He's Senior Director of Self-Government Implementation for the, Nation, excuse me, for the Métis Nation of Alberta. And, and Garrett, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about a precursor to this recently ratified constitution. And back in 2019, um, there was a, a self-governance agreement there in Alberta that was signed uh, with not only the Métis Nation of Alberta, but a couple of other Métis nations as well. And I just want to ask you, collectively, how supportive were the province's Métis communities of that agreement in 2019 of self-governance? You know, the, the 2019 uh, MGRSAs, as we call them, uh, were, were widely supported by the, the provincial Métis communities. And the reason for that is the, the mechanism we have in place to get that feedback from our citizens, particularly within the Métis Nation of Alberta, is our annual General Assemblies, where all citizens have the ability to come and, and make their voices heard. Now, they have consistently uh, given direction to leadership of the MNA, and that's, the role at the, that's their role at the Assembly. But they've consistently given that direction for the MNA to go and negotiate with Canada and to try and pursue self-government either through agreement 
um, through the you know or through the courts, but they've been consistently pushing us uh, towards that path uh, as the nation and as their government. You know, and to uh, to President Audrey Potro's credit, for, for the last 25 years, she has done that. She's managed to succeed where where other governments have failed. And the MNA became the first Métis government in Canada to have a self-government recognition agreement with Canada in 2019. And that really laid out the, the framework and the path that got us here to this constitution. Okay. Bruce, I want to bring you back into the conversation because um, what, I, what I'm, I'm kind of sensing here, uh, in, in addition to this issue here with the constitution and the ratification and some of these uh, events and policies that led up to this is I'm sensing a debate over how indigenous government should operate and should they be built on colonial models of bureaucracy or or something different, maybe something more akin to what existed pre-colonialism. Is that, uh, is, is that an issue Bruce as well when we talk about these issues today? Yeah, thanks. I think it's a very common issue for Indigenous people, not just in Canada, but all across North America and around the world. We're in this transitional period where Indigenous people, including the Métis, are really working hard to carve out that space where they're exercising their own laws, traditions, jurisdiction around governance. And while they're doing it, they're both uh, needing to work with provincial, federal governments to ensure that they have the space to exercise their decision-making. And they're also working internally, working internally to decolonize their operation, and I know I talk to clients, friends, fam, fam, family all across the country, and uh, decolonization is tough work. It happens at a national level, at a provincial level, at an organizational level, at a personal level, and I think this is one good example how the Métis in Canada, in Alberta, are going through that hard work. It's going to take some time, but I think as long as things are open, transparent, and always coming back to these first principles of who the Métis are, what the history is of how the Métis have made decisions and governed themselves, um, I think we're hopefully on the right path. Gene, Bruce uses the term uh, decolonization and moving forward. uh, Earlier you shared some of the historic relationship that the Métis have with the Canadian government and uh, this constitution. Is that a path forward with regard to decolonization and and how the Métis self-govern? I think um, any time... Uh, Indigenous people form and support and uh, keep their own um, models of governance together. Uh, And whether they change and whether every single person or every group agrees with them isn't the major idea. The big point is self-government. We've seen 
the Métis Nation be governed by the Canadian government, as have all Indigenous peoples in Canada, for centuries, and they blow it. They make decisions based on their own determination of what we need and what our people need, and they're always wrong. So from my perspective, um, even if we're not perfect about self-government, we should grab it with both hands and then let's argue among ourselves about it and figure it out and push internally about it because at least then we know what's best for our own people. And there's irrefutable evidence in Canada about that now. We see that um, for First Nations, they have these indicators like so housing, economic well-being, health, education. Self-governing nations, their um, indicators of their own well-being increase dramatically the minute they have self-government. And the nations who are under the sort of government, band council governance of the federal government, their standard of living is decreasing. So I say grab it with both hands and let's fight among ourselves. I'd rather fight with Adam and Garrett and Bruce about this than I would with the federal government or the Alberta government. All right. Well, let's bring Adam in. Uh, Adam, I'd like to, to hear, hear your thoughts. Are you okay with uh, fighting it amongst yourselves? I mean, there's a, a group of communities, Métis communities, that do not support this constitution. So where do we go from here? Uh, what's the plan of action? I entirely respect Jean Talay. She's a leader in our community, and I, and I do see a difference between natural tension versus decolonization. You know, we can fight it amongst ourselves if we have leaders like Gene who know who they are and they're willing to actually do what's best for the people to own themselves because they realize that's who we are as a people. For me, this decolonization starts with being open and transparent. If we're going to move away from a colonial government structure, we need to be open and transparent and recognize that, you know, by default, we're a people who govern ourselves. And sure, we could have this push internally to be able to do so, but it's difficult when you know you have a small group of people who are controlling the access to making decisions they control it through basically the the process and the content and you know we have countless examples you know they had a vote in grand prairie and i'm not trying to draw this out into the public entirely but it really highlights it we had a vote in grand prairie to delay the postponement of elections that's a hallmark of democracy mm-hmm. and they had to call it to question three times to have it pass by, you know, a vote or two somehow. And like, that's not democracy. That's not who we are. It's actually an embarrassment. And so while I respect Gene, I think that we need to actually look at calling this what it is. My concern is that our federal government has found a way to exploit actually giving us self-governance by, you know, allowing a small group to make overarching decisions that unempower communities. I could go through in dozens of examples that would be too long for this show, but I'm concerned that we're losing that grassroots in our community and the ability to make joint decisions. And I'm not sure having it formalized is going to change that. That might just set some of these problems in perpetuity, uh, Gene, and then that's difficult to go back from. Okay. I want to give uh, Garrett a, a chance to respond. So, uh, Garrett, how do you feel about moving forward? Do you, do you feel that some of these voices, such as um, 
Adams and some of these communities that that don't support the Constitution, do they need to be heard? Do do more discussions need to occur going forward? You know, I, it's incumbent upon the the MNA as the government of of the Métis within Alberta to hear those voices. You know, uh, at the end of the day, the the MNA is the government for all of its citizens, whether they voted yes, no, or whether they didn't vote at all, including uh, for for Mr. Browning. So I mean, we acknowledge that, and and we want to see those content conversations continue. In fact, uh, Madam President made that quite clear uh, immediately upon the results uh, announcement. But at the end of the day, these conversations need to keep continuing to make sure that we build a strong government. But there's never been unanimity uh, within the Métis Nation as to, to governance or anything else, and there isn't unanimity in any democracy. That's why that's the hallmark of democracy. Okay. Uh, there's lively debates, there's disagreements, you know, and that's a unique part of our history, um, and that's going to continue. And, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, despite it being a very strong mandate to move forward, we have to move forward in a way that includes everyone's input. And at the end of the day, the, the Constitution lays out the framework to make sure that happens, to make sure that every citizen has a voice and will always have a voice within the nation. We've got a caller on the line now, Melinda, listening up in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Melinda, you're on the air. Thanks for calling in today. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Sean. This is um, such an amazing program. Um, so I think my question is likely... Um, probably focused a little bit more to, towards Jean Taillé or Bruce McIver. Um, the question I have just relates to, obviously, identity issues have um, recently especially sprung up uh, some major issues in, in places of, uh, of influence. So a lot of scholarly, scholarly institutions have been finding cases of pretendians um, in their halls, uh, you know, people who have had um, large, uh, large grants, scholarships, uh, pieces of work written um, with false uh, identification. Um, so, with issues in the governments right now happening, with all of the the Métis governments across Canada sort of in a bit of tumult, um, what what suggestions would you give towards? Um, you know, scholarly institutions in order to uh, sort of <laughs> protect their foundations, um, right? There's huge cracks, huge gaps right now. Um, infiltrators are getting in, and, and yet there's, there's, there's no mechanism to, to block okay. those gaps. Okay. So what could be done? All right. Melinda, thank you for that call. And let's go ahead and let Jean respond. Jean, uh, Melinda uses the term pretendendons, uh, infiltrating some of these uh, scholarly institutions. Uh, what's your thought on that in terms of handling some of these folks that uh, may be claiming Métis identity? Yeah. So uh, thanks for the question, Melinda. Um, I just wrote and dropped a whole big report that I did on this very issue for the University of Saskatchewan that began in response to a pretendian um, Dr. Carrie Barassa. Um, so anyway, the report is not about her because she resigned, but it is about, it, it does address the entire issue. I, I'm not a fan of the word pretendian because pretend um, is the kind of thing kids do, and it sounds harmless and cute. So it's a little too cute to my mind. I, I appreciate the pun and the, um, the, the fact that it does, it, it's a nice word, but it, it underplays the harm caused by these people. I call them fraudsters. Anyone who intentionally 
deceived in order to get a material benefit is engaged in fraud. And so, or impersonation, you could call it that, although they're not impersonating a particular person, they're, per, they're impersonating Indigenous people. So it's a problem. It's a huge problem. We have tens of thousands of people in Eastern Canada who are um, doing what um, the marvelous Dr. Carolyn Tate calls mining the archives to find an ever-so-great Indian grandmama from the 1600s that they haven't known about for 400 years, and then they decide that that enables them to be called Métis. I think that's a fantasy, and I don't think we should give it the time of day. So what can the Academy do? And I also would note this is a huge problem for government as well, all institutions. The idea, first of all, is that we cannot accept self-declaration. You cannot just go and find an Indian grandmother somewhere in your genealogy, and then self-declare yourself as Indigenous. It's just not sufficient. There has to be some uh, connection to, and I would say, acceptance by the, um, the community. So the problem we have is we had a court case called Daniels where the Supreme Court of Canada, and I would argue quite erroneously, said that there was no need for community acceptance because that was only about um, Section 35 rights. So Section 35 is a part of the Canadian Constitution that recognizes and affirms Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Indigenous, of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada, including the Métis. But I think that's wrong in law because the very basic Section 35 constitutionally protected right must be the right of the Indigenous peoples of Canada to determine their own members. And so I think that um, the case is all wrong, and it has created chaos and encouraged chaos all across the country to the point where I think we have, well, there's one group alone in Quebec called, that has more than 40,000 people in it that just sprang up, um, another one that's 20,000 people. So there's lots and lots of this going on. We had one judge in Quebec I thought was quite marvelous. I'll, I'll give you a rough translation of it, but he I gave, because um, it was written in French, the judgment, but basically he says that, you know, the thing that he remarks on is the, what he called the remarkable creativity of the people coming before him. And then he said it would be easier to nail jello to the wall <laughs> than to find anything of substance okay. in the claim. And that's the point. You know, and this is what's going on up here. So right. Melinda's quite right. It's a serious problem. I know you have it in the States, too, because we see it with Elizabeth Warren. and. Oh, know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Gene, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. We're going to have to wrap up. We're, we're going to have to wrap up, Gene. But I, I sure do appreciate your comments and all of our guests today. Gene Taye, Garrett Tomlinson, Adam Browning, and Bruce McIver for what's been a really insightful conversation on the recently ratified Métis Nation of Alberta Constitution. Join us tomorrow for a look back at highlights from this year's Native Art and Fashion. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean Spruce. 
You see the car ads, low price, low payments. Sounds good, but when you get to the dealer, there could be a catch. The dealer may try to add things like extra products or services at extra cost. And to get that low monthly payment, you might have to make a big down payment. The bottom line is this, if you can't get the advertised deal or one you feel good about, walk away. If a dealer isn't honest when it comes to its car ads, tell the Federal Trade Commission, the nation's consumer protection agency at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Support by the Federal Trade Commission. Ah, Hespuk Ni, Tuxch Nilum, Tchis Ohomu, Greek spell Pooch Nilum in Ne, Holkwin, Tluas, Puch Stachen, Stehui, Tchis Ohom, Tluachentin, Tchwebs Denish, Spuch Stachenish, Tchwokul tells it to on Kalif Suchmariam, Kulnechts me, Uhachuimit, www.medicare.gov, slash coverage, slash flu, dash shots, Yes, Mamit, and Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.